Welcome and thank you for joining me on episode two of Galaxy Rise. This is the December 2018 edition of the show and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. Thanks to everyone who subscribed and listens to the show. I really do appreciate your support and your feedback and questions have been great. In turn, I am listening to you and I'm fine tuning things, hopefully for the better, with this episode. I do want to hear from everyone still, so please email me at hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com Follow me on Twitter at Rise underscore Galaxy, and be sure to search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook and YouTube. If you enjoy the show, please drop a line or a review on iTunes if you can, or wherever you may find the show on Google Play Music, Spotify, TuneIn, or etc. Of course, you can visit www.galaxyrise.com anytime to catch up on all the feeds and related blog posts. Along with all the tech and planning it's taken to produce this show, the number one thing I'm learning is that there's a lot to cover. The structure of the show is designed to provide timely space news and information, alongside foundational insights into astronomy, the history of exploring the cosmos, as well as thinking critically about the world around us. It's got a quasi-sport talk show meets NPR sort of vibe, or so I've heard. Dr. Carl Shriver wrote, The creative process of science is an inextricable interplay between logic and intuition. I really love the way that that sounded, even though it is a bit of a mouthful. Following gut feelings and hunches about challenging questions has propelled our dreams and actions for millennia, and these same feelings of confident deduction and impassioned wonder carry us towards the stars and looking back through time. Really, from understanding the motion of clouds, the properties of light, to the notion of gravitational waves, which are ripples in time and space caused by things like the collision of two black holes, we need to always follow a common set of principles. Yet critical thinking requires creativity and a continual, but then what happens, curiosity.
Future Museums right there from a recent release off Holodeck Records from Austin, Texas. The album is called Rosewater Ceremony, and the track is Cosmic Winds Reprise. The band's founder, Neil Lord, is a pivotal member of the Holodeck family, is involved with many other projects, as well as with running the label. Pick this up at holodeckrecords.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Launch Report! This month I'm going to cover some general space and aerospace related news from the past few weeks, and then I'll review some of the recent and upcoming rocket launches. Back on November 5th, the world's largest cargo aircraft, the Antonov AN-225, left Bremen, Germany, bound for the United States. Inside was NASA's Orion service module built by Germany's Airbus on behalf of the European Space Agency. This module is a critical part of NASA's new crew-centered Orion spacecraft program, and it will assist in carrying future astronauts to the moon and back. The enormous aircraft took a rest stop at Pease International Airport in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which just happens to be next to town over from me. However, weather and schedule prevented me from seeing it. My good friend Josh did manage to snap a shot of the Antonov on the tarmac for me, which you can see on a Facebook page. Arriving at Kennedy Space Center, the service module was unloaded and began its long testing phase here in the U.S. The service module will provide critical burns to attain lunar orbit and then again to leave orbit and return to Earth. The module, consisting of more than 20,000 components, including solar arrays, engine, thrusters, and life support environmental control systems, will undergo a number of tests before it's integrated with the Orion crew capsule. Once paired together, they will travel to NASA's Glenn Research Center's Plum Brook Station in Ohio, where it will be subjected to 60 days of continuous testing in the world's largest thermal vacuum chamber. Meanwhile, researchers have had their hands full after a discovery of a massive meteorite crater under the ice of northwest Greenland. On November 18th, we learned the findings of an international team of researchers, including Joe McGregor, a glaciologist from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. A Danish team from the University of Copenhagen Center for Geogenetics at the Natural History Museum of Denmark has been working for three years to verify their discovery back in 2015. The team was using NASA data from Operation Icebridge, which is a multi-aircraft research mission, as well as earlier airborne surveys. Icebridge used ice-penetrating radar to create a new map of the topography beneath the ice of Greenland. When reviewing the publicly accessible NASA maps, scientists noticed a previously unobserved circular depression under the Hiawatha Glacier. Using imagery from NASA's Terra and Aqua satellites, McGregor corroborated their findings by discovering evidence of a matching circular pattern on the glacier's surface ice. Additional research was performed in 2016 by Germany's Alfred Wegener Institute, using more powerful radar systems provided by the University of Kansas, revealing greater details. The survey exceeded all expectations and imaged the depression in stunning detail, a distinctly circular rim, central uplift, disturbed and undisturbed ice layering, and basal debris. It's all there, noted McGregor, an expert in using radar to measure ice and the underlying surface features. The crater formed less than 3 million years ago when an iron meteorite more than a half mile wide smashed into the northwest Greenland. This was eventually covered by glacial ice. Researchers are continuing their investigation into what is now among the youngest impact craters, eager to identify precisely when it was formed and what global implications it may have had. 
Pangaea X is an extension of ESA's Pangaea Geology Training Program, brought German-born ESA astronaut Matthias Mauert and fellow team researchers and engineers on a week-long trip to Lanzarote, Spain. The volcanic island is covered with lunar and Martian-like features. The eight primary experiments simulated real-life situations that may be encountered while performing landing excursions on remote landscapes. We are targeting tools and procedures in a real environment with real tools and real communication constraints, explains ESA project lead Lordana Besson. The integration between science and operations is crucial. In one experiment, Matthias had to remotely operate a rover located back in the Netherlands. The same system will be further tested in 2019 from the ISS by Italian ESA astronaut Luca Parmitano, who will be part of Expeditions 1661. This time, the rover will be navigating the actual lava flows and surface features of Lanzarote's volcanic landscape. Another standout aspect of the test was the software system called the Electronic Field Book. This robust application is an all-in-one tool that integrates real-time positioning, data sharing, voice chat, notation, and many other features. From 3D models to in-situ geological analysis and robotic teleoperations, this is one of the most realistic ways to prepare for a return to the moon, notes Francesco Soro, scientific director of the test campaign. Just like the Pangaea X's dry runs, astronauts exploring the moon, Mars, or any other accessible solar body system will perform experiments remotely, work with remote and autonomous robotic counterparts, gather samples, perform research, and test new technologies. Finally, NASA officials announced the first flight of the new X-59 Quiet Supersonic Technology, a.k.a. QSST, aircraft. Lockheed Martin was awarded the final contract to build the X-59 in April 2018, following 17 months of prior research and design work on the program. Once built and delivered to NASA in 2021, the new X-plane will spend the next three years making research science flights, initially to prove the Quiet Supersonic Technology works as expected. Then it will fly over several U.S. cities to measure public reaction, if any, to the hushed sonic thumps rippling over the population on the ground. If all goes as planned, this new technology can be applied to the production of supersonic passenger jets that are actually safer, quieter, more fuel-efficient, and faster than current aircraft. Man, it's been a busy month so far for launches. China saw two successful launches of their Long March 3B rocket on November 1st and November 18th, and then on November 20th, the Long March 2D rocket. That made 34 of their targeted 40 launches for 2018. New Zealand's Rocket Lab successfully launched its new Electron Booster, sending six small satellites and a drag sail demonstrator to orbit on Sunday, November 11th. Congrats on their first commercial mission! On November 3rd, Roscosmos launched a Soyuz 2B delivering a navigation satellite, and on the 16th, an upgraded Soyuz FG rocket took the Progress MS-10 cargo freighter to the ISS. On November 15th, the SpaceX Falcon 9 launched from Kennedy Space Center, sending the Qatar SL-2 satellite to orbit. India launched the GSAT-29 successfully to orbit on November 14th, and a HISIS satellite on a PSLV C-43 on November 28th. Ariane Space launched ESA's Met-Op-C on a Soyuz rocket on November 6th, as well as a Moroccan Mohammed 6B spy satellite aboard a Vega rocket on November 20th. NASA launched a Northrop Grumman Antares rocket on November 17th from Wallops Islands, Virginia, sending the USS John Young Cygnus cargo freighter to the ISS. The ULA Delta IV Heavy rocket launched on November 29th from Vandenberg Air Force Base, 
And today, just in time for this recording, on December 3rd, another Falcon 9 launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base, delivering the historic spaceflight SSO-A rideshare mission to orbit, including 64 satellites ranging from a Rubik's Cube size to about a refrigerator. And, excitingly, Roscosmos launched the newest uh, crew members up to the ISS this morning aboard a Soyuz FG rocket from the Balkanor Cosmodrome. We're so glad we get our humans back up to space following the aborted mission from October. December's looking pretty crazy, too. SpaceX has three launches set. All Falcon 9s, December 4th from Cape Canaveral of a Dragon ISS cargo vessel. The 15th is also Cape Canaveral for a U.S. Air Force third-generation GPS satellite. And on December 30th, 10 Iridium Next mobile communication satellites. On December 4th as well, Ariane Space will launch Ariane 5 ECA rocket carrying the GSAT-11 and Geocomp satellites to orbit. And also a Soyuz VS-20 will carry a CSO French military satellite on the 18th. Rocket Lab's Electron will launch for the fourth time on December 10th. India will launch the GSAT-78 communication satellite on the 14th. China has a tentative December 8th launch date for the Long March 3B, carrying the Chang'e 4 robotic lunar lander and rover mission. Roscosmos is planning to launch three commercial and government satellites on separate rockets, two on December 25th and one on December 27th. track is called Who, and that's off the debut album Odyssey from the electronic duo Fafion, or Fion. That's F-F-I-O-N. This is off the brand new label, Soundtracking the Void out of the UK. The music focuses on music for the sublime, with the mundane and beautiful within the grotesque, the light within the darkness, and all those reversed. Check this out and other releases at soundtrackingthevoid.bandcamp.com. 
In honor of NASA's recent InSight spacecraft landing, this month's Hubble moment will be about a rare observation of Mars. On July 18, 2018, the Hubble Space Telescope trained its wide-field Camera 3, also known as WFC3, on the planet near its closest approach to Earth since 2003. The camera, installed in the fourth Hubble servicing mission in 2009, combines an ultraviolet imaging spectrograph, or UVIS, and an infrared spectrometer. These devices capture wide-field imagery in the non-visible ultraviolet and infrared parts of the spectrum, providing a more complete view of the planetary atmosphere than just what's visible portions alone. This close visit for Mars is called an opposition, and it's a relative position as both Earth and Mars move independently around the Sun. Opposition occurs roughly every 2.5 years, but for some, the distance between the planets is much closer. Much to the dismay of the astronomy community, a massive planet-wide dust storm whipped up on Mars earlier in the spring. Though clearly larger in eyepieces, still red, and with visible northern and southern polar ice caps, the planet was shrouded in a fuzzy blur even for the best telescopes available. The Hubble did not disappoint in its efforts to capture the distorted planet at opposition. A crisp arc cuts the planet out from the black of space from the northern to the southern poles, along with the western side of the image, and the eastern side is opposite as a gradient edge goes from orange to black with a distinctive fuzzy haze. The red clouds are visible over much of the southern pole, south pole, giving the normally bright white region a swirl of rusty contours. White clouds and ice blend with blue hues all along the western edge of the south pole and cover the entire north pole on the top of the planet as well. The orange area in the upper center of this image is the Arabia Terra, a vast higher elevation region in northern Mars that covers about 2,800 miles. The landscape is densely cratered and heavily eroded, indicating it could be among the oldest terrains on the planet. South of Arabia Terra, running east to west along the equator, are the long dark features known as Sinus Sabias to the east and Sinus Meridiani to the west. NASA's rover Opportunity landed to the western portion of the Sinus Meridiani, while its twin, Spirit, landed on the other side of the planet. These distinctive areas are covered by dark bedrock and fine-grained sand deposits ground down from ancient lava flows and other volcanic features. Therefore, the sand is coarser, less reflective than the fine dust that gives the brighter regions of Mars their rusty appearance. A large oval area to the lower right of the image is the bright Hellas Basin, about 1,400 miles across and nearly 5 miles deep, it was formed about 4 billion years ago by an asteroid impact. Many global dust storms originate in this area, the deepest feature of Mars. The combined observations will aid planetary scientists in building a better understanding of how global storms arise on the red planet. Though Hubble has taken far better pictures of Mars when dust storms were cooperating, this image shows Mars as it is, a raw, unpredictable, windswept desert planet. Be sure to check out HubbleSite.org for this and other great Mars shots.
Off the compilation album Communion on Burning Witches Records, that's Graham Resnick with his track Faking Point. Graham is a prolific artist, writer, musician, and filmmaker. He's got a new short form series currently streaming on Shudder.com called Dead Wax. Check this out and many other great tracks on this comp, as well as Graham's latest album at burningallwitches.bandcamp.com. Moving on to exclusively exos, the newest weapon in our exoplanet hunting arsenal, the transiting exoplanet sky satellite or TESS mission was recently credited with first three official planetary detections. By October 12th, the official count also includes 54 potential exos revealed in the first phase of science operations which began July 25th, 2018. The three planets include Pyamense C. It's a super-Earth-type planet that orbits around an extremely bright star, Pyamense, once every six days. The star is also home to a previously discovered planet called Pyamense B. This original planet is estimated to be about 10 times more massive than Jupiter. A super-Earth is one of the most common types of exoplanets discovered so far. These planets have mass between that of Earth and Neptune, and this name is a bit of a misnomer. The actual properties of the planets are largely unknown, and the name speaks to the planetary mass and density, not in regards to it being a supersized, lush water planet. The red dwarf star, LHS 3844, is home to a planet that's just slightly larger than Earth. The ultra-short orbit of LHS 3844b clocks in at 11 hours, at an estimated distance of about 930,000 kilometers. This is one of the closest known exoplanets to Earth at about 48 light years away. A red dwarf is a small, relatively cool star that emits a dim red light. They are the most common stars, comprising an estimated 75% of all stars in the galaxy. Finally, the third discovery announced in early October is HD 202772ab. This is a hot Jupiter-type planet orbiting the bright, brighter of the binary star system, HD 202772. The orbit occurs once every 3.3 days, and the inflated hot giant is a rare, strongly irradiated planet with an estimated temperature of about 3,300 degrees Fahrenheit. Stars often have historically significant names, along with their more academic numeric catalog ID. When naming exoplanets, scientists have adopted the standard of adding letters to the end of a name or catalog ID, beginning with the letter B. So in the case of the star Pi Mensae, which is also known as HD 39091, it has two planets. Pi Mensae B was discovered first, and then Pi Mensae C is the one attributed to Tess, would be the second planet. This is further complicated when discovered planets are around one of the stars in a binary system, two stars which orbit one another. So the stars of the binary system are labeled A and B, after their common name and or catalog name. Then the identified exoplanet's naming convention, yet again with adds another letter to the host star's name. So Tess's third discovery is within the binary star system, HD 22772, around the member star, HD 202772A, and the planet is called HD 202772AB. It's a bit unwieldy, but certainly specific, and it creates uniformity and cohesion in the exoplanetary catalog. These latest additions are added to an ever-growing number of confirmed detections from all other sources of exoplanetary research data. 
These data include observations from recently retired Kepler Space Telescope, which conducted its final observations shortly before running out of fuel in uh, October 2018. The mission generated over 5,000 candidate exoplanets and confirmed detections are at about 2,660. This is growing by the week as subsequent reviews and follow-up observations from other instruments are converting candidates to confirmed detections. It's important to note that the exoplanet hunters are not only attempting to find the holy grail Earth-like planet residing in the Goldilocks zone of the distant star, although it is indeed what we're all hoping for. The reality is that we're not able to easily detect Earth-like stars, uh, planets within the 365-ish day orbit we have. This is because we're very small, and the observational impact of our planet, of our size and orbit on a given host star, would require our instruments to detect subtle changes in light while looking at the same place in space for a very long period of time, at least a year. This means we need to utilize the data we are able to capture for a range of purposes, extending the scientific value of hunting efforts. By observing exoplanetary systems around stars of varying ages and sizes, we're able to learn fundamental details about our own solar system and sun. The lives of these distant neighbors and our own planet are inherently connected. Back to uh, Carl Shriver in his book, One of 10 Billion Earths, How We Learn About Our Planet's Past and Future from Distant Exoplanets. He noted how, by observing the vast region of systems at all varying stages of development, we can piece together timelines of our own origins. Dr. Shriver approaches the topics of stellar and planetary formation from an astronomical and astrophysics perspective and compares and contrasts the findings of exoplanetary research with the models uh, computer models of solar system and planetary formation. By utilizing this approach, he draws compelling conclusions about the unique blend of critical must-haves for creating a solar system and an Earth like our own. However, these findings also allow us to provide more accurate inventory and catalog exosystems and planetary counterparts. In short, like all sciences, the key to fully understanding something requires a comparative research approach allowing the skill sets and perspectives of many disciplines to challenge pre-existing preconceptions and forge some new hypotheses. I highly recommend the audiobook version of this if you've got the interest. I was able to follow most of the physics, and when I got lost, which was frequent, I was easily able to get right back on track when the theorems and related formula yielded to the very accessible narrative writing style.
brand new music right there from Omni Gardens out on Holodeck Records. The band goes deep into ambient exploration here with a really beautiful album called West Coast Escapism. The track is called The Physical Plane, The Astral Plane, and you can pick this up at omnigardens.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Mission Control! I'm happy to report that InSight Mars Lander touched down safely on the planet on November 26th. The spacecraft launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base back on May 5th, 2018. InSight now lives near the Mars equator on the western side of a flat, smooth lava flow called the Elysium Planetia. We hit the Martian atmosphere at 12,300 miles per hour, and the whole sequence to touching down on the planet only took six and a half minutes, said InSight's project manager Tom Hoffman at JPL. During that short span of time, InSight had autonomously performed dozens of operations and do them flawlessly, and by all indications, that's exactly what our spacecraft did. The flight team has every right to celebrate. Entry, Descent, and Landing, or EDL, is a harrowing ordeal concluding a decade of research, design, and construction of the lander. InSight hopes to unlock the many clues hidden beneath the surface with its array of hardware, including a robotic mole which will burrow about 15 feet down to study the interior of the planet. The most recent journal Science announced the observation of a symmetrical reconnection in the night side of the Earth's magnetosphere. NASA's Magnetospheric Multiscale, or MMS, mission consists of four identical spacecraft that orbit around the Earth in a precise formation. The first reported asymmetrical event occurred on October 16, 2015, and now the symmetrical event back in July of 2017. In both cases, NASA's MMS mission made history by flying through these magnetic reconnection events occurring near the Earth. This was a remarkable event, said the paper's lead author, Dr. Roy Tobert, Deputy Principal Investigator for NASA's MMS. We have long known that it occurs in two types of regimes, asymmetric and symmetric, but this, for the first time, we've seen a symmetric process. Torbert is the Heliophysics Program Director at Southwest Research Institute Department of Earth, Ocean, Space at the University of New Hampshire in Durham, New Hampshire. NASA's Juno spacecraft made its 16th close science flyby of Jupiter on October 29th and captured some stunning images as well of the gas giant. Upon perihelion, the closest point of its orbit to Jupiter, it gets within 4,300 kilometers of the surface of the planet's atmosphere. Coming down from the north to south poles, these close flybys allowed Juno's vast array of equipment to probe beneath the obscuring clouds in an effort to learn more about its structure, core composition, atmosphere, and magnetosphere. The images captured in this most recent perijove revealed amazingly complex swirling vortices and ribbons of storms cutting across the planet. One even had a familiar shape of a dolphin swimming among the waves. This ability we have to find patterns in random data is called pareidolia, and it's similar to when we see shapes and faces in clouds, trees, the moon, etc. Juno launched back in August of 2011 from Cape Canaveral, Florida, and arrived at Jupiter on July 4, 2016. To date, it has completed 15 science passes over Jupiter. On November 7th, the Parker Solar Probe reported back that it was doing just fine after its first close solar approach in October. The craft came within 15 million miles of the surface of the sun, far closer than any prior spacecraft. Mission controllers at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, or APL, confirmed that the Parker Solar Probe was operating perfectly. At its closest approach on November 5th, Parker Solar Probe reached top speed of 213,000 miles per hour, setting a new record for spacecraft speed. 
The sun-facing side of Parker Solar Probe's heat shield reached about 820 degrees Fahrenheit. This temperature will climb up to 2500 degrees Fahrenheit as the spacecraft makes closer approaches to the sun, but the equipment side will stay a cool 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Science data is scheduled to begin downlinking to Earth in early December. And in related news, NASA announced the retirement of the venerable Risi Solar Observatory. The 16-year-old craft launched back in February of 2002 served as a sentinel in space, watching for solar flares and dramatic events called coronal mass ejections, or CMEs. In total, the craft tracked more than 75,000 solar flares using just one instrument recording both X-rays and gamma rays. The instrument combined images of the sun with spectroscopy to show all the different energy levels in the flares, allowing scientists to map out where the energy comes from during an explosion and what's producing that energy. It's expected to continue its low Earth orbit until such time in about 2020 when it will eventually decay and burn up in our atmosphere. Hail Reese! And today, the day of recording, the NASA spacecraft OSIRIS-REx reached its target, the asteroid Bennu. It will spend nearly one year studying and surveying the asteroid with five scientific instruments in preparation for a descent and sample return effort. And finally, preparations are underway for the last few weeks here of the historic imaging and research flyby of NASA's New Horizons as it cruises past the Kuiper Belt object, Ultima Thule. This is going to happen on January 1st, 2019. It's a great New Year's Day celebration for sure. Expressive track right there from Is Visible Is Invisible off their latest released Ghosts of New Mills. The track is called Iron Filings, and you can pick this and their 2000 release, Ghosts of the Furnace Vale, at isvisible-isinvisible.bandcamp.com. 
Next up is Unlikely Encounters, where I peel the layers off some various UFO, alien, paranormal, or pseudoscientific folktales. I'm a longtime sci-fi and alien freak, so I've got a lot of history believing all this, and it's my sacred cow, so to speak. Last month we talked about the Barney and Betty Hill case, which set the stage for several decades of similar stories, but a less mainstream and equally historic in many senses is the Exeter Incident. Coincidentally, this event took place at the seacoast town of Exeter, New Hampshire, just 15 miles from the Hills' home of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The alleged incident occurred four years after the Hills and two years following their widely publicized hypnosis sessions, so needless to say, the locals and many others around the region were hot with UFO fever. In the early hours of September 3, 1965, a string of UFO sightings were reported in several towns around and in Exeter. At 12.30 a.m., Eugene Bertrand, an Exeter police officer, found a woman parked on the side of Route 101. She was distraught after having been chased by a flying object with red flashing lights. She then showed Bertrand the lights in the distance, which he watched for a short time. Without any further thought, he dismissed them and assured the woman that she would be okay. Meanwhile, 18-year-old Norman Muscarello was hitchhiking home from his girlfriend's house in nearby Amesbury, Massachusetts. While walking through the rural area towards his home in Exeter, he came upon the Thing, which he claimed to be as big or bigger than a house. A group of five bright lights appeared over a house about a hundred feet away from where I was standing. The lights were in a line about a 60 degree angle. They were so bright, they lighted up the area. The lights then moved out over a large field and acted at times like a floating leaf. They would go down behind the trees, behind the house, and then reappear. The lights always moved in the same 60 degree angle. Only one light would be on at a time, he claimed. They were pulsating. One, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. So they were so bright, you could not distinguish the form or the object. I watched these lights for about 15 minutes and they were finally disappeared behind some trees and seemed to go into a field. At one time, as I was watching them, they seemed to come so close I jumped into a ditch to keep from being hit. Soon after, he flagged down a car, and the frantic man went straight to the Exeter Police Department to report the incident, arriving at about 2.24 a.m. Officer Bertrand, still on duty, drove Muscarello back to the field in the house around 3 o'clock. The odd lights were still there. Recalling his own experience, Bertrand noted, At one time, they came so close I fell to the ground and started to draw my gun. The officer stated that there were five bright red lights. Indeed, they were extremely bright. They flashed one at a time, he added. The lights were so bright, I was unable to make out any form, however. Soon after the befuddled officer called for backup, patrolman David Hunt arrived and also witnessed the lights, which finally moved east towards the Atlantic Ocean. Enter the United States Air Force, who had been conducting an extensive training operation out of the very active Pease Air Force Base in the neighboring Newington, New Hampshire. At the time, it was home to many strategic air command resources, as well as an air refueling wing featuring the lumbering KC-97 aircraft. That night, the Air Force was wrapping up a two-day Strategic Air Command NORAD training exercise called Big Blast. This exercise included a number of KC-97 aircraft in fixed formations refueling B-47 jets at varying altitudes. These aircraft were also likely to perform many low-flying passes in the seacoast area while practicing aborted landing simulations, appearing, disappearing, and reappearing low in the sky as they circled around and around in a 20-mile flight pattern of touch-and-goes before they finally land for the end of their drill. 
The three men filed official reports with the Exeter Police Department, and upon reading them, the chief of police called contacts over Pease Air Force Base and reported the sightings. The Air Force investigators interviewed the witnesses and determined that the men were of sound mind and demeanor, but there was no evidence to support anything other than that the men had probably seen the aircraft training exercises. However, the men were not pleased with this conclusion and held strong to their collective story about it being a huge dark object, as big as a barn and silent with no sounds, just the five blinking lights which lit up the entire fields and woods alike. The memory recall of people in unusual circumstances is very susceptible and easily contorted. We all agree that the women driver and the three men were indeed seeing some unidentifiable flying thing or things. We can all agree that there were a large number of confirmed low-flying strange-behaving aircraft in the area earlier that night and continuing into the wee hours of the morning. We can also agree that the witnesses all became frightened, excited, reactive, confused, and all the other things that panic can invoke when strange and unusual and abnormal things happen. For 45 years, this story went basically unchallenged, resulting in a number of books, TV shows, interviews, and many a UFO convention. Until veteran scientific skeptic Dr. Joe Nickel worked together with retired USAF Major James Magaha to review the breadth and scope of reports. Magaha, as it turns out, had actually performed many mid-air refueling operations with the KC-97 back in his time of service. He noticed that the reported flashing pattern of the UFO's bright red lights, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and repeated over and over, were matched identically to the set of five lights on the belly of the KC-97 aircraft. These ultra-bright lights would pulse in sequence and their light would be reflected on the refueling boom when it was fully extended down off the back of the plane at its average 64 degree angle. The lights were bright enough for approaching pilots to see them clearly from great distances and needed to be turned down as not to blind them. There are small wings at the end of the refueling boom which can be controlled by an operator in the tail of the airplane. When fully deployed and not being flown by the operator, the boom will bob and weave gently in the sky behind the aircraft, like a leaf in the wind. The same angle, the same motions, the same colored lights, the same blinking pattern, all on an aircraft known to be flying in such a configuration over the same skies. We'd have to throw out pretty much all physics to prevent the dozen or more aircraft, their onboard crews, and ground-based air traffic controllers from seeing these UFOs as described. We'd also have to implicate all of them, plus the thousands of military and government personnel at peace in a grand conspiracy that somehow, also, hid this craft from 30,000 or so area residents who could have possibly seen something over the seacoast that night, besides the abundant aircraft.
I've been a longtime fan of Bing Satellites out of Manchester, UK. That is off the latest release called A Life in Dreams, and it's a selection of a much longer ambient piece, Earthrise on the Moon. The artist, Bryn Coleman, produces an immense amount of music with 124 releases on Bandcamp alone. He's also an accomplished astro and terrestrial photographer. Please visit bingsatellites.bandcamp.com to find this and all of his releases. Wrapping up the show, we've got night vision. This is devoted to all aspects of amateur astronomy. Observing conditions have been a bit rough for me lately, but there have been a few standout nights. We went from a great summer and early fall for observing to a cold and wet transition to winter. So my sessions have been a bit opportunistic and brief. It seems that whenever it's not raining, it's been cold and with even colder winds. I've yet to upgrade my eyepiece on the Orion X-T8 Dobsonian I've got, so I'm really only good for a fairly wide field of view with okay magnification still. But it's better than my binoculars for some things, but not others. So with the changing seasons, my whole bearing of reference has also been adjusted as well. The Big Dipper is now under the northern horizon for much of the early parts of the night, and Orion is starting to come up earlier and earlier in the east. The familiar relationships I've learned over the summer are all gone. So there have been two regular go-tos that I've been hitting with the scope for practice. The Andromeda Galaxy is actually pretty easy to find. An average pair of binoculars will reveal a faint smudge, and my telescope setup shows a bigger smudge with a smaller smudge nearby, which is actually a dwarf satellite galaxy of Andromeda. I need to observe both of these using averted vision. I just look to the side of the object and I can actually see it more clearly this way. This is a known observation trick. Your peripheral vision is actually better at resolving distant light than your direct view. The larger of the smudges is one trillion stars swirling around a behemoth spiral galaxy. With a decent astrophotography setup, you can get some really impressive details. When scientists or the media need to use an image of what we think the Milky Way galaxy looks like, they use one of Andromeda because we believe them to be basically the same shape, though ours is indeed smaller. With the equipment available to me through my slew.com membership, the pictures of the Andromeda galaxy are great. I love to image it with different scopes and image processing settings to alter the details. It's a great looking object up close. And by the way, it's on a collision course with our galaxy. Uh, more on that sometime later. If you can find the elongated W of Cassiopeia, which many people recognize, you can find the Andromeda galaxy, but it does take some practice. The constellation of Andromeda is elongated as well, and it runs almost parallel to Cassiopeia. Due to the orientation of the sky right now, the outlines of these two constellations would have the Greek goddesses with their heads chatting to one another upside down. The Andromeda Galaxy is sandwiched in between these two easily learned star formations. If you could find the star Mirage, which forms the left hip of Andromeda, you would then find her right hip star, which is Mu Andromeda. Draw a line between these two stars and then extend it one distance further towards Cassiopeia and you'll be right on the galaxy. These two stars serve as guideposts, and they're quite easy to find in a low-power eyepiece. If I had a high-powered eyepiece, I would switch over to that once I had Andromeda centered in view. And I'm open to any suggestions on what I might want to try for an eyepiece if you have any. Next, I'll swing over to the southeast and I lock in on Messier 42, also known as the Orion Nebula. This is a gorgeous, feathery-looking formation with much more structure to resolve in my setup. I was truly taken back by it the first time I saw it, and I really can't wait to upgrade just for this one nebula alone. 
Orion is super easy to spot. There's a distinctive hourglass shape formed by two stars for shoulders and two for knees, basically. In the middle, there are three stars for a belt, and then hanging below that belt, at an angle, forming a sword, are several more stars. But really, that's where the nebula is. Finally, this month is a great opportunity to see a couple comets if your viewing location and conditions permit. Comets are small icy objects that have unique orbits around the Sun. They're believed to originate from far out beyond Pluto from either the Kuiper Belt or the Oort Cloud. When they approach the inner solar system, the various frozen materials in the comet begin to react to the increased effects of the Sun, resulting in distinctive fuzzy coma at the center and long gaseous tail. The combination of solar wind and radiation results in both outgassing and ablation of the cometary material. With over 6,300 known comets, the cores range in size from a few hundred meters to tens of kilometers. The highly fluctuating coma, on the other hand, can grow up to 15 times the size of the Earth, or larger. Earlier this year, I was able to observe the comet 21P, Jacobi Zinner, with just a pair of binoculars, and help from the virtual planetarium Sky Safari. The free application Stellarium I've mentioned before would work just as well in tracking and finding comets. This month, my target is Comet 46P Wertman. Though visibly bright for a comet, this might be a bit of a challenge to find and require binoculars and telescope for most viewing conditions. Presently, it's appearing rather low in the southern sky, not too far below and to the left of the constellation Cetus, above and right of Formax, and just to the right of Eridanus. These lesser-known constellations contain several stars that form a triangle around the comet in its present location. Anyhow, as has been the case lately, weather and viewing conditions have not cooperated, and so I've not actually seen this directly yet. I have been able to capture it using SLU.com and perform a series of sequential observations on the night of November 28th. The resulting images showed a bright core, large coma, and somewhat visible tapered tail. I used five of the colorized images which show the comet as a vibrant green to create a small time-lapse video which I've shared on my Twitter account. Making the animation requires software like the free GIMP imaging software, and I imported the sequence into separate layers, aligning each layer on top of one another so that a single reference star served to align all five images. When doing this, you have a fixed background, and then the cometary movement against the black of space is clear. As much as I love to see things with my own eyes, and finding and observing comets is both hard and rare tree, Having SLU in my corner really brings this whole level of immersion and hands-on appreciation for both the local and far-distant celestial objects. 46P Burton will actually be closest to Earth in its 20-year solar orbit on December 16th, and it will increase in brightness to be seen with the unaided eye. But that time, it will have moved much further away from the horizon and be visible for longer periods of night above the constellation Taurus, which is the target of Orion's bow and arrow. So finding the comet becomes a lot easier due to its location away from the horizon and its increased brightness. Hey, so thanks a lot. This wraps up this month's episode of Galaxy Rise, and I really thank you for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians and labels and science communicators who've helped make this show what it is and keep me inspired. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios, and it's hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Until next month, clear skies. <laughs>